Hi, it's Jack here. Welcome to the Optimist Podcast. If it's your first time here, this podcast is all about innovations, ideas and solutions that are set to change the world and help us tackle some of the biggest issues facing us today. This time we're talking to one of the founders of a company called Chipsboard, who make a revolutionary bioplastic from potato waste. We, do, we don't believe that that's what sustainability is. We don't believe that, oh, my glasses are biodegradable, but they're, they're brown and they've got, they come in a cardboard recyclable box and like they're, they're very hippie. And like sustainability doesn't need to look unfashionable. We're really trying to prove it. It's estimated that roughly a third of all food produced around the world is wasted every year. Wasted food, which isn't consumed, is often left to decompose and in turn produces gases like methane, which contribute to climate change. Food might be wasted because it's been scraped off your plate into the bin because you just didn't fancy eating your greens, because it was lost during transit, didn't fit the strict supermarket cosmetic rules, or in the case of our guest today, cast aside as a waste product in the production process. Each year we get through millions of tonnes worth of food made from potatoes. But what happens to all that food waste produced when making things like your favourite bag of chips? Before, the potato waste would have been viewed as a worthless byproduct, most likely ending up in landfill or as animal feed for livestock. But today's guest thinks his company has the solution. I'm Rob Nicholl, I'm the co-founder of Chipsboard Limited. Um, And Chipsboard are a material innovation company that looks to create new sustainable materials, but from slightly different feedstocks. So we work with uh, industrial food waste. So uh, we don't see it as a waste. We see it as an amazing resource, but um, nationally and internationally, it's it's currently seen as a a waste feedstock from these industries. Uh, And we can take this this resource and we can convert and create bioplastics. Uh, that can be used in a huge variety of uh, uh, of industries and applications, uh, just as sort of is the nature of plastic. Before we get into like the nitty gritty about the the material and the bioplastics that you're creating, can you just talk me through how you ended up uh, co-founding this this business? You know, wh- where did the idea come from? Yeah, it's a it's a slightly strange tale um, that has no traditional material science uh, background at all. So. Um, the company was founded by myself and my co-founder, Rowan Minkley, um, and we both studied design at university. So at uh, Kingston University, we were designers, um, and first and foremost, the company started as just a solution to our own practice. So we were making a, a lot of things at university, so making prototypes and inventions and all sorts of things for our projects. Um, and those that have experienced sort of design school, art school, will know that you create a huge amount of things for like a two-week span and then that gets marked and then obviously you're in a student house, you've got nowhere to store this thing, if it's furniture or something large. So it does just have to go to waste. So we were looking at alternatives that we can use in our own practice uh, to reduce the amount of waste that we were, use, uh, we were producing. And really we couldn't find anything. There were materials out there which we, we could have used, but they were either hard to get hold of. They were extremely expensive and for students uh, cost. I mean, we're not anti-MDF and chipboard and all these wonderful, uh, wonderfully cheap materials, not wonderful materials, but they're wonderful in in the uh, sort of the purpose they serve. So we were looking for these materials, couldn't find them. And so we sort of turned to 
uh, our sort of more obscure design brains where I was looking into strange materials that uh, people have created. And Rowan was working as a chef at, time, at the time. So uh, I mentioned we are uh, doing some work with potatoes. He mentioned that he had a lot of potato peels um, for, uh, making fries in the kitchen. So we did a lot of uh, hack chemistry in our university kitchen uh, at the home we were living at, making a big mess, uh, but actually created a material that was very similar to MDF and chipboard. It's a, it was a rigid board material that was sort of uh, smashed and crushed and together and baked in, in various processes. And we designed these big rigs to uh, frame the sheets to let them cure and dry. And that was kind of the, that was, yeah, it was, that was the chipboard material sort of point one. Um, that was the earliest uh, sort of version of what we were doing. And that led us down some incredible sort of journeys. Um, we secured places onto accelerator, um, sort of ex- accelerator groups and, and sort of, um, and facilities. We, uh, with that MDF alternative, that chipboard alternative, we entered multiple entrepreneur competitions, which we were successful in. So we were the 2018 Santander Entrepreneur of the Year non-tech. So this this early version of the material led us to have some wonderful experiences and, and, and some early success. It also allowed us to bring on uh, a few members of staff that did have a material uh, a background in material science and uh, and chemistry and, and, and these areas that uh, were gaps that me and Rowan were looking to be filled. But then... So I mentioned at the beginning that we create plastic. So why am I talking about an MDF alternative? We sort of hit a we hit a block with that material, and that was mainly that the things that make chipboard and MDF so wonderful are the price. And actually, the industry we we, we were having a lot of pushback from people that yes, artis- artisanal designers and things were saying, oh, I, I would be interested in using it, but really the industries that we would would buy in mass and w- which would make that business model feasible were saying that actually the costs that we were floating would would be nowhere near feasible on 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 a scale so we uh, we took a step back spoke to the incredible sort of scientific team that we'd built around us and uh had the conversation that actually without changing the feedstock while still exploring this industrial food waste we uh, can uh, begin to create bioplastics. So uh, some of the benefits from the material to make the first material can be changed and tweaked to uh, um, sort of turn the company towards making bioplastics, which at the time Blue Planet had just sort of been launched and uh, sort of plastics was the, the, was enemy number one out of the mouths of every single sort of sustainability uh, sort of protest or, or movement globally so actually we saw that that could be a great opportunity to sort of to turn the company in that direction and solve potentially a larger problem with our products it's amazing how from just taking potato waste and and having that situation of having the waste in in the kitchens that you've gone on this amazing journey over the last few years uh, to where you are now do do you think you could have done it with any other waste material or is it just you just happened to find that potato waste was was the most suitable yes yeah, so it was interesting so we we started with potatoes purely because i was very interested in potatoes i was uh, <laughs> uh, uh it was actually going back to earlier projects where i was doing potato prints and seeing how far i could take that so you know sort of like the childish sort of art medium right um and actually, we just it just so happened that potatoes seem to actually fit quite well into creating a new material as well. And it's a material that uh, it's it's a food source which is produced in the thousands, hundreds of thousands, even millions of tons per year 
Obviously, it's one of the uh, the UK's favourite uh, favourite foods in all different forms: chips, crisps, mash. So yeah, uh, it, it was just a bit of luck mixed with uh, um, mixed with just a, a little bit of uh, knowledge as well with uh, what a, what that resource could become. But absolutely, we're we're actually exploring with the company now other feedstocks. So it's not just potatoes. There's other um, industrial food wastes that we can uh, explore and use and will fit within our system. Um, and the reason that's really important is because if we really want to make our material a substitute for those currently out there and we want to produce in um, various regions around the world, obviously some countries don't have a huge potato processing. They may have another feedstock or another food stock that um, would work with our process. So it's important for us that we 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 do diversity, uh, diversify our feedstock to um, make sure it can include as much as as it can but going back to the potato we uh, after the sort of the the award success we were seeing and actually really in the middle of the award success we were seeing um we got very lucky in the sense that we were obviously working with potatoes me and rowan had this multiple conversations about what the best thing that could happen be with this project and obviously now it's a fully fledged company and we're uh, we've got multiple employees, but at the time we were just seeing it as almost still a project and we said, oh, well, how how far could this go and what would be a great outcome? And one of the things we said was, oh, it'd be great to get McCain on board. When you think of potatoes in the UK, you can't not think of McCain. I think everyone has a, a freezer burnt bag of fries or some sort of product they uh, create at the bottom of their freezer. Yeah. Hidden at the back of the freezer, yeah. <laughs> exactly, I, I know. Um, and they're still good no matter how many years they've been in there. So um, we so we were trying to approach McCain. Um, we weren't getting as far as we'd like. We thought, oh, you know what, it might happen, but let's just continue with doing what we're doing. Uh, and then out of the blue, we had this wonderful email from the alumni, uh, the alumni team at Kingston University, that mentioned that the uh, the UK CEO at the time uh, was a, King, uh, a Kingston alumni, and would we like to arrange a meeting? Wow! Um, and we sort of we jumped on the opportunity got a long train up to Scarborough from London and we had a chat with these guys and they were instantly on board, which was great. So um, that was a really another sort of stepping point to us moving Chipsboard from a project that won a couple of awards to uh, a fully, fully fledged sort of business case. When you met with the team at McCain's, was that, were they conscious of that issue of having a huge amount of food waste that they didn't have any use for or did they already have, you know, procedures in place where they'd compost it or something i mean there's always procedures um because it was going to extremely low-grade animal feed um so actually it wasn't providing much nutrients to to that feed but it was just being a bulking agent but some of it uh they're, they're actually producing more than that could even sort of take so some was having to go to waste they were looking to anaerobic digestion so looking at other uh, solutions but for 50 years um McCain have ha- have had this as a problem. Yes, they've found um, sort of channels to put this waste, but it has been a problem. And uh, actually, the, the CEO that we chat- sat down with, uh, Nick Vermont, he actually said that finding the solution to uh, waste within the potato industry is is the holy grail. Let, let's talk about the actual material that you're creating, because you've mentioned the term bioplastics yeah. quite a few times, and people listening might be thinking, what on earth is a bioplastic? Is that... Is that the material they use, I don't know, in a supermarket to create those compostable bags or is it some other, you know, scientific material that we haven't yet seen in stores? Can you just describe to people who may not have any scientific knowledge 
what a bioplastic is and how it is different to your typical plastic that you might buy in shops? Um, so uh, bioplastics that your, your, your customers will be widely aware of uh, come in two forms, really. Um, the first form is the is what we're not doing, which is when you have your food compost at home or those green cow bags. I know the Co-op and some other supermarkets have incorporated them. Yeah, uh, they're they're essentially starch based plastics. Uh, they're wonderful because they're home compostable. So although the, your food waste bag is made out of it, it can also go into your food waste bag. Normally, it's pigmented green, so people down the down the stream actually in the composting and sorting facilities know that that's the correct place for it to be because they're uh, just a slightly side sidestep there has been some issues with um what has been thought to be contamination with some new plastics which is home compostable but actually it should be there but if it looks like plastic it's still quite a funny um a sort of a funny uh, story within those uh sorting facilities because they're, they're still not 100 sure obviously what belongs in that in that sorting facility um so that's uh, that's not what we're not doing uh, and but it's wonderful that we're seeing more and more home compostable plastics in in the sort of in our supermarkets in in the retail environment because that's definitely the right step forward. The the thing that's most parallel to what we're doing at Chipsboard is probably the the object you'll see the most is coffee cup lids. So if you have a, a lid of a coffee cup and it says uh, compostable or biodegradable, I think most uh, most coffee chains. Uh, sort of uh, are now swapping over to those even some of the sort of biodegradable straws and vegware that you see the sort of cups and these are industrially compostable plastics so um essentially means they need to go to a facility where it can be put through the right requirements to break down uh, at an accelerated pace so it won't break down if you leave it in your garden it won't break down like an apple core would which is obviously uh Normally, when we talk about biodegradability, the apple core is almost the, the flagship of what biodegradability is and how quickly something breaks down. It's important to say that both are, uh, are both are biodegradable. Biodegradability has a large misconception around the word currently because people believe that it's, again, like I say, the apple core. You, you leave it outside and it will break down very quickly. Biodegradability, um, if your audience don't know, is... Essentially, it just needs to break down over a non-allotted period of time. It could be a month to 100 years, but it just won't negatively affect the soil. It won't add anything. Um, obviously, microplastics is something we've heard so much about. Uh, so there's some uh, pseudo-bio materials that will break down naturally, but they essentially break down to smaller and smaller pieces of plastic until you can't see them anymore. They, that, that can't be considered bi- uh, biodegradable because it negatively introduces foreign objects into the soil. So our materials are biodegradable because they, if, even if they took 100 years to break down without being industrially composted, um, they won't negatively affect the soil that they're, they're laid to rest in. So if, uh, if we're making some glasses, we'll get onto a little bit, uh, obviously, what our, our material could be used for. But if you're making some, uh, say, spectacles that I wear and you're, for some reason, running in the forest and they fall off your face. Uh, obviously, I can't talk about the other materials on the eyewear, but actually the plastic components of the eyewear that is made using our materials won't add any horrible microplastics or any noxious chemicals to the environment, which is very important for what we're doing at Chipsboard. And you said earlier that originally when you were just trying out with a bit of home chemistry uh, in the flat, um, just the two of you working out how to take waste potatoes and create it into something... 
How has that uh, process now advanced to what it is today? You know, it must be quite scientific. You must take the the waste product itself, take it through a, a number of stages before it gets to the final product that you can then mould into different uh, items that people can buy and use for for different um, purposes. The process is night and day. It, it's so hard. It's so hard to draw <laughs> uh, draw differences because essentially there's no comparisons. Um, when we were working before, it was essentially sort of mashing up the, these peelings uh, into a pulp. We were laying it into sheets and f- putting it into moulds, baking it, heating it, pressing it, sort of doing very um, uh, very tactile processing of this waste to just basically form it into a form of some sort, be it a sheet or uh, we made sort of small plant pots as the first ever thing we made and that was essentially moulded into uh, the caps of deodorant cans. So really, really rudimental okay. uh, science um, uh, sort of <laughs> at university. You must have had, had friends and family coming over thinking, what, what are these guys up to? Yeah, we had, we had two other housemates that, I mean, believe me, the smell isn't desirable. So we, uh, oh, wow, we, uh, okay. we, I think we had to buy some beers or maybe cook a couple of dinners to make up for it. <laughs> but, um, the, uh, yeah, there was definitely some strange looks and uh, definitely from... We used sort of the large presses in the workshop to make some of the sheets and some of the tutors in the workshop were looking at us like we were nuts because we were two guys carrying essentially blended up old potatoes through a, a nice clean woodworking and metalworking workshop at university. Um, I li- I'd like to think that um, now that we've seen some success and we've been in some media, they... Uh, Maybe some people click and say, "Oh, that's what they were doing." Okay, they weren't. Uh, yeah, they, they weren't crazy. <laughs> they weren't. They weren't as crazy as we thought they were. Um, but looking at the process as we as we are now, um, really, essentially, what we do is we take the waste from whatever food processing industry that we're working with at the time, um, and uh, in our labs, we can essentially break it down into individual components. Uh, I, I often describe it as uh, sort of Lego, so we can break down say a potato peeling into lots of different building blocks uh, and then we can <laughs> our wonderful chemists can uh, essentially uh, pick and choose those building blocks and rebuild in into a into a polymer into a plastic that obviously can be used to make products the the material is ideal for injection molding so it'll come in pellet form when commercially available um, which just on the topic of sustainability um, is an extremely sustainable way of manufacturing because it's additive manufacturing, so you only use the amount of material that you need for the object. And actually, for for as long as injection moulding has really been around, there's been a fantastic behaviour of regrinding even the sprues and the smaller bits that aren't used back into the process and reusing. So there's very little waste with injection moulding, uh, and that's why we're glad that our material can be sort of optimised within that that sort of method. Um, but also we're lo- looking at exploring... 3D printing filament. So most thermoplastic manufacturing methods, we're looking at seeing how we can use our material within. You, you've produced this um, kind of material from the potato waste, and now someone's coming to you and they want to create, as you've already mentioned, you know, a pair of glasses or sunglasses or something. Uh, what what kind of products can you actually create with this bioplastic it's it, it is truly endless uh, to a to a to an extent um uh, the the extent being the performance you need from the material um for example uh, and, and that's the same with all materials you wouldn't make car tires out of wood because the material property isn't right for the for the application so as long as the uh, the application 
seems right for our material, really the industries and the applications are, are limitless. As if you can think if you can think of a use and the performance of the material would fit within that, then um, it, it, it's usable. Um, obviously, there's a lot of things that we're testing and doing. To, like, for example, we we can't uh, fully guarantee food safe um, sort of criteria yet because um, we're, we're still within the R&D phase. So we're obviously going through and that takes a lot of rigorous and fairly expensive testing to be able to get that stamp. Um, and so being in R&D, there's a lot of certifications that we're yet to achieve. Um, a, a lot that we're confident that we'll achieve, but a few that are still uh, question marked. So that's why we don't sort of give a huge amount of promises currently around, okay, our material does this and that and this, um, which leads to a lot of the companies that we're working with being not supply agreements initially, but collaborations. So we're working with a few brands, for example, Ace and Tate, who are a European eyewear manufacturer. Uh, we're working with them, uh, a few other uh, sort of well-known fashion brands, which unfortunately are behind a cloak of uh, NDAs. Oh, okay. Um, They're all secret. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a lot of secrets in the material game. But, um, <laughs> but uh, we're, working, we're working with these companies that actually are happy to be involved in the R&D process um, and, and to actually be some of the first to, to get the material within to their products. So they're sort of... Uh, they're providing some of the data that we need. We'll provide material as and when it comes out of our of our research process, uh, with with the hope that if we can obviously get success um, within these uh, listed product projects that we currently have going on, um, then a lot of other brands when we launch will sort of have some security that it has worked for other brands, and that's uh, quite important. We, off, bravery is also something I speak about when. For brands to adopt new tech, they need to have bravery to th- say, think, you know what, we, we need to try using new materials. It might not work, but we need to put the energy into just seeing if we can improve our, uh, our sort of processes and, our, uh, and the way that we work. Um, I think, uh, yeah, there's a, lot, there's a lot of risk reward currently within, especially fashion, but uh, a lot of different industries. Are, are these brands that you're now working with, are they was using an alternative to traditional plastic something that they were conscious of um you know with the growing awareness in society about plastic waste and especially single-use plastics is this something that they were actively looking for to find a solution or is it just something that you suggested to them and they were like wow that's great let's let's give it a go no um most of the brands that we work with we've been approached by them um so they've normally had great uh sort of sustainability teams or uh csr managers and and, and various uh uh, various things. I think just like when David Attenborough sort of brought uh, sort of brought the plastic problem to sort of mo- the general population. Yes, I think yeah. the fashion industry has also been widely known, probably for the last ten years, to be one of the most damaging industries globally. And really, I mean, you look at Extinction Rebellion, you look at all the climate crisis. Um, fashion again is 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 enemy number one. So plastic is enemy number one, but fashion is one of the big main users of plastic so it obviously uh, it obviously has the knock-on effect one thing i have noticed about you know your business that we haven't really touched on yet is your focus and your link with the circular economy because it's not just about taking this waste product and creating it into something cool that everyone can go oh look a pair of sunglasses made of potato waste you know it's not just about that for you guys it, it seems to be that it's that whole kind of circular journey of taking the waste, making it into something, and then making sure that it's not just going to sit there for thousands and thousands of years, but actually it's going to go back into that 
circular kind of loop. So how does that work with the products and, and the business that you've you've built? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So circular economy is is one of the main sort of pins of uh, of what we build the company around. Um, before I answer that, I'll, I'll sort of talk about some of the competitors that I spoke about making plastic cups and and lids and things like that. So the first step, really, in us being very circular is 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 the use of a waste. Uh, so a benefit that we have over some of our sort of uh, our competitors making um, bioplastics is that they are growing crops. Uh, so they're growing corn, uh, sugarcane, uh, using huge amounts of land, huge amounts of carbon, huge amounts of water to actually grow a crop to develop a bioplastic. Um, now this is obviously has been a, a great step forward from previous uh previous sort of plastic production uh, but now we can actually take that step further and use a waste stream or considered waste stream as i said earlier we see it as a resource that's the first step so we're not taking virgin resources or we're already plugging into a uh, into a waste loop moving further down the line we um we are very conscious especially at the beginning when we have a lot of control over who uses our material um to work with companies that have a really great relationship with their customers in terms of um, the conversation they're having. So Ace and Tate um, have have got a great a lot of these uh, these uh, sort of sort of not these huge fashion houses that you hear, but some of these um, these these larger independent fashion brands have have great media with it with with their customers, and they can offer things like uh, they or they can at least explore offering sort of take back schemes or repair schemes and that's always the first step is if you can reduce someone buying something else to replace and actually just repair or mend so that's that's really important for us to have this that relationship with these brands and then actually obviously if, if that's the case if brands can say to their customers once you finish we will take back the material that's a way that our material can be taken to industrial compost. It can be obviously turned into compost and be used to grow, hey, maybe potato crops in 2022. Who knows? So that's uh, that's sort of the quickest loop around we can think of. One thing as well as to mention as well, when you mention what our material can become, what products it can become, talking about the fashion industry, most people just con- consider the garments, the, the objects that are the, 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 f- the fashionable items. But um, I would urge your listeners when, I know shops are open again now, but when they feel safe to go to the shops and next time they, uh, when, they, uh, when they next venture into a store, a clothing store, look at the amount of plastics that aren't for sale. So look at the thousands of coat hangers that uh, all of the garments are hanging on. Look at the uh, the signs for changing rooms, you know, and you see how many objects you'll bring into a changing room, those plastic sort of rectangle hangers. Look at those. Look at shoe forms. Look at mannequins. So there's huge amounts of plastic which isn't being sold and uh, and subsequently isn't being dissolved into an unknown space where we don't know where that plastic is. There's a lot of plastic that stays within a, a single retail environment. So that actually makes it a lot easier for us as the material producer to um, have a relationship with these brands, offer to take back this plastic, which not only means that we can reuse and actually produce less plastic ourselves because while we're a producer of plastic the least the least of if we can actually reuse plastic to then resupply that's obviously a plus Um, and obviously we can make sure it goes to the right channels you're always fighting a battle when it comes to biomaterials because you're always hoping that someone does the right thing with it at the end of its life so obviously if you have 
if you have a uh, a cup that's meant for industrial um, sort of composting, you need to obviously make sure it gets into that channel. If you have something going to food waste, you need to make sure it gets into food waste. I often compare it to someone buying a um, a Swiss Army knife and cutting and actually cutting themselves while doing something with it. That isn't the fault of the knife; that's the fault of the user. So they don't have to redesign the knife to be safer. They need to re- they need to educate the, the the customer that bought the knife on how to use it properly and how to be responsible with that product. So um, that's the very vague example that I give. But um, education around how customers deal with their their waste at the end of the use that they have with it is extremely important. You, you touch on a really important issue there about, about education and the fact that, you know, a lot of us, I don't think, truly understand how to recycle properly and how to, you know, which bins to put everything into because it is very complicated. And when you've got a lid on a coffee cup that has to be composted in a certain way but you can put an apple in a composting bin at home you know it, it's it can be very confusing for people so i suppose only education can kind of fix that i was on a i was on a train back when the world was normal yeah um and i was at the food cart and obviously um I, I, not obviously but i got i got a coffee and it had a, a compostable lid and i was talking to the uh, uh the guy working in on, on the car and he's he very excitingly was mentioning how he took some of the lids home and he buried them in his garden because he was excited to see how quickly they disappeared. And um, I sort of nodded and sort of... Uh, oh, no. I, it was late <laughs> at night and I nodded and sort of uh, didn't really want to have the heart because he was so excited. I didn't really have the heart to yeah. tell him that actually if he, du- if he dug them up in two years' time, they'd probably still be there because actually that isn't the right uh, <laughs> the, the right way to dispose of, of of that product. It's extremely great that that can be that product can be disposed of into composting, but again, it needs to be in that industrial setting. Which I will also add that the UK currently there's a lot of work that needs to be done around that. So uh, your listeners might sort of now question, okay, well, if I get a coffee cup and it needs to be industri- industrially composted. Then where's the industrial composting bin in my in, in in my office or in the town center? And there aren't there aren't any. That's that's sort of the sad that's the sad truth. There needs to that's why we would we would we, we, we as chips board don't want to work with packaging. We don't want to work with um, uh, single use objects. We want to work with plastics that can either have a long enough life for infrastructure in the UK to catch up, and then then there will some, be somewhere to, for consumers to put that waste. Or work directly with the uh, with the brands themselves, so we can reclaim that material uh, until there's a, a a good solution for it. So I think yeah, education around materials, what can be done with the materials. I mean, uh, some countries, Amsterdam, Germany, have wonderful recycling systems already. I I say there aren't any bins for compostable plastics. So I was in uh, Dublin Zoo three years ago, and they did have bins for compostable plastics. So again, it, uh, because they're an enclosed organisation doing doing some wonderful things there but in the uk currently it's council to council some allow you to recycle black plastic some don't some have a rule that if it crinkles it can't go into plastic recycling um some have blue bins some are black bins some have bags not bins i mean it's it's a complete mess really currently so we're trying to fight the battle from our side but there's huge amounts of changes that need to be made uh within the actual infrastructure of material recycling as a whole one thing i wanted to ask because many people listening might be thinking well bioplastics sound really cool but if i put let's say as an example here uh i got two sets of sunglasses um one was made out of you know your 
typical plastic and one was made out of bioplastic. They're both the same colour, same design and stuff. On inspection of these two different types of plastic, could you see anything different in terms of, you know, by looking at, at it with the naked eye? Absolutely not. Um, they, there'll be less colour, there'll probably be initially there'll be less colour choices and colour options because obviously traditional plastics can do a lot more. Yep. Um, and you're not just talking about the base plastic, you're talking about um, heavy metal based pigments and obviously oil based pigments. So you can get your neons and your uh, all sorts of colours um, when you're not trying to be sustainable. That being said, uh, we're beginning to collaborate with a company called Pili, who are based in France, that are creating bacteria-derived dyes. So they're actually growing colour, wow. um, which is uh, which is fantastic for, um, for for us because obviously we can explore having amazing blues and reds and, and vibrant materials because uh, material colours. Because again, I, I'm I'm not blind to know that a lot of people when they think of bioplastics and biomaterials think of brown and green uh, and that's pretty much it so that and that's why the company logo of chipsboard is red because we sat down and we said the logo can be any color as long as it isn't brown or green and we we, we banned the use of a, a leaf any because obviously like if you see a green logo with a leaf you know it's a sustainable company so we <laughs> so we wanted to ban all things uh, that are the sort of cliches within sustainable branding because that's we do, we don't believe that that's what sustainability is. We don't believe that oh my glasses are biodegradable, but they're they're brown and they've got they come in a cardboard recyclable box and like they're they're very hippie and like sustainability doesn't need to look unfashionable. And we're really trying to prove that. Yeah, it should be the norm. Absolutely, it should be the norm. I mean, um, obviously, we're not in, uh, commercially available yet uh, as as a product, but when we are available, um, like we would hope to see a lot of companies uh, swap over to our. So if there are materials, they can be used in the same way, in the same processes, using the same manufacturing methods. So really, there's really minimal barrier to entry. Um, and actually mentioning it being a norm always brings me into an answer that I give when people ask, where, what are my goals, what are my long-term goals for the company? And obviously, the company has very different goals. Obviously, we have shareholders and all sorts of people to keep happy. But my personal goal as a founder of the company is to be inherently uninteresting. To, to explain myself slightly, I would love for someone to... I mean, right now, if you had a pair of glasses made of our material, that's a conversation that's worth having. You could say, oh, well, I've got these glasses. They're made out of um, Parblex, which is the name of the plastic. So someone, someone could say, oh, well, I've, we've got the, I've got these Parblex glasses. They're made out of food waste. And obviously that's a conversation starter. I would love in 20 years time for someone to say, oh, I've got Parblex glasses. And their friend says so what aren't all glasses made out of Parblex you know so whilst I will always find what we do we're doing interesting I would I would love it to be a, to be a norm to like just as a box made out of MDF is not an interesting object I would love uh, objects made out of our material to be inherently un, uh, uninteresting and that brings us to the end of the show. A huge thanks to my guest today, Rob. If you want to discover more about anything we've discussed in today's episode, then do have a look at Chipsboard's website, which I've added to the description. Next time, we're chatting to the founder of a company that's planning on incentivizing landowners and businesses to get involved in carbon capture. I've been your host, Jack Sheeran. See you next time.